Hi everyone, it's March 26, 2015. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Anatole Kreitzer. He is Associate Investigator at the Gladstone Institutes of Neurological Disease and an Associate Professor in the Department of Physiology and Neurology at UCSF. Hi, Anatole. Hi. Uh, his lab focuses on understanding the mechanisms of cellular and synaptic plasticity within the neural circuits of the basal ganglia that control motor planning and that become disordered during disease states such as Parkinson's. Um, around the room, we've got uh, Matt Wanat. Hello. Is it why not or why not? That's why not. Why not? I always say it wrong. Why not? Matt, why not? Why not? Yeah. Um, Carlos Palladini. <laughs> Hello. We've got Todd Troyer. Hello. Charlie Wilson. Hi. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. There's a long body of work, including yours, that's found that direct and indirect pathway striatal neurons exert opposing control over motor output. And I want to, I want you all to talk about that, uh, that worldview first, but I also want to get, um, to get to your work that extends that idea, maybe in the next half, uh, but I but I want to get to it, so I'm I'm saying it up front. Um, this idea that that the direct and indirect pathways can also differentially mediate the hedonistic or, or reward versus aversion uh, mm -hmm. aspects of action selection. Definitely want to get to that, so we have to stop at some point and move to that if it doesn't naturally <coughs> go that way. We've talked about the direct and indirect pathway dichotomy of the basal ganglia action selection before in this podcast, but can you um, just remind us again of how that system is functionally laid out um, and how well that framework has served us in understanding normal motor behavior as well as pathological syndromes? Sure. So I'll say first off that, you know, there is this, this, this scheme for the direct and indirect pathways that was laid out in the late 80s. And it's, it's a giant oversimplification. So I'm, what I'm going to lay out here is, you know, I, if I were to lay out the whole network, it, it's really hard to make sense of. But the basic idea is that in the striatum, which is the main entry point into the basal ganglia, there are these two major cell types, the direct and indirect pathway, medium spiny neurons. And these have different targets. The direct pathway projects directly to the output of the basal ganglia. And the indirect pathway projects first to an intermediate nucleus, the GPE, and then uh, via you know, other way stations to the, to the output. And there is the idea that the direct pathway is somehow involved in facilitating movement and the indirect pathway is involved in suppressing movement. And that the differential expression of dopamine receptors, so D1 receptor on the direct pathway, D2 on the indirect pathway, confers the ability for these circuits to respond differently to dopamine and potentially then differently to things like unexpected reward or you know, unexpected omission of reward. What do we understand about Parkinson's based around? Yeah, around so, so I guess the development of this, of this model was intricately linked to understanding movement disorders. And so... The idea has been that in Parkinson's disease, there's a loss of dopamine inputs. And what that means is that there's a loss of activation of these D1 receptors, which are thought to be more facilitating. They're coupled to the GS, uh, G proteins. And so that results in, a, in less activity, in theory, of the direct pathway. And 
there is also less activation of the D2 receptors in the indirect pathway. And the D2 receptors are GI-coupled and thought to be inhibitory. And so the loss of dopamine there is thought to increase activity of the indirect pathway. And the net effect, of course, of a reduction of direct pathway and an increase in the indirect pathway is a suppression of movement. So this nicely explains bradykinesia in Parkinson's. It doesn't really tell you much about tremor or rigidity, but it very nicely explains bradykinesia. And the idea in other disorders is that, you know, for example, in Huntington's, there's a selective loss of the indirect pathway neurons early in the disease, and this is thought to lead to some of the hyperkinetic aspects of that motor disorder. So uh, at face value, I think this nicely kind of maps onto some of the some of the basal ganglia disorders and the, the kind of key symptoms that are observed. At least it did in 1989. So what about I the mean, knowing what we knew about things about 1989? So can you say something about what happened what about in 1989? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was when the paper was written. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> diagram. <laughs> the diagram was. Cool was created in 1989, and then it never got changed. Right? So if you drew out the diagram for how the visual cortex works in 1989, and then compared it to now, you'd probably find some differences. And so with the visual cortex folks, what they've done is change their view of the wiring of the cortex to accommodate those differences. What's happened in basal ganglia is that everybody decided not to change their view of the basal ganglia to accommodate changes in our knowledge about the diagram. So that's, I mean, you know I was going to say something like that. Yeah, so I'd, love, so I'd love to hear what you think are the key circuits that have subsequently been uh, discovered or described that you think are really the, miss, the missing important components of this circuit. Well, I mean, there were a bunch of things. But let me just say... Say, uh, I'll do that. And I want to do <laughs> one more thing first. Like one of them is, uh, in 1989, it was not easy to test any of those ideas. And the principal test is that the basal ganglia cell's output firing rate should go up when you have bradykinesia and should go down when you have hyperkinesia. And since then, that's been tested thoroughly, and it is not so. It is not so, and Parkinson's patients do not have slower firing basal ganglia output neurons, and and the uh, and hyperkinetic things, is to, to the extent that they've been studied, don't lead to increases in firing either. So that's I think that's important. I mean, you make a part of the purpose of that diagram and model was to make testable predictions about how the diseases worked, and those those tests failed, and. And so you, one, one might ask the community to sort of wrap their heads around that failure and to cope with it. I, I would ask. I would ask that. That's my question. But let me answer your, your question. So that, you probably have a response. And then I, I am, so I do have a quick response to that. And I'm, I don't want to be seen as you know, the, the champion of the uh, classical model because I think it has plenty of problems. But I, my response to that is, you know, looking at the average firing rate of a nucleus may or may not be particularly informative. And in the case of PD, you know, you have some some cells might go down and some cells might go up, and the mean firing rate of the nucleus just doesn't change at all. And the question is, is there something else going on? Is it, is it oscillation? Right, so is, it, is, it, is, it, is, it, is it subsets of neurons that are important and other subsets of neurons? 
So that would be version two of the model. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, I would just, I just think maybe it's time for version two of the model. Yeah. I mean, yeah. uh, certainly that's one explanation for it. It could yeah. still be mean right. It could still be important, but it could be not the way it was in the diagram. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, about those, some of the connections. So uh, uh, nobody probably cares too much about the details of the connections, and that's one of the reasons the diagram has such staying power. <laughs> but the... But I would say there were there were a couple of connections that were known at the time that they wrote that that they left out on purpose. One of them was the GPE to GPI, GPE to SNR connection. Very important connection because it provides another indirect pathway. And that indirect pathway isn't the indirect pathway. Uh, in fact, it still isn't on the diagram most of the time. And, here, and another one was the STN back to GPE pathway, which makes a loop. That one was also known at the time of the diagram, but it didn't get put on because it didn't fit the idea. It would, the diagram wasn't supposed to represent the wiring of the basal ganglia. It was supposed to represent this concept about how diseases got made, and that fit, didn't fit into the concept. And I'll mention just one more, but there's, there's I could go on. But I would bore you because there's because they're just connections. But one of the one of the, ba- the the basic finding that led to this diagram in 1989 was the discovery that there are two groups of striatal neurons: ones that went to the output cells and ones that didn't go to the output cells. And that discovery had been made already in 1981. That was, and so it was known then that there were two different kinds of striatal cells, ones that went to the output nuclei and ones that just went to GPE. And the ones that went to the output nuclei made synapses in GPE too. There are no direct pathway-only neurons. There's only indirect pathway-only neurons and then all of the above neurons. And so that collateral was left off of the diagram by design in order to simplify the concept. So the whole notion of the direct and indirect pathway, as it was known in 1981, was modified for simplicity in the diagram, and that modification, you know, eight years later, and that simplification stuck, too, despite numerous repetitive experiments uh, confirming the original finding that there were no direct only pathway neurons. And that third of all the synapses in GPE from the striatum are from direct pathway neurons. So that's my rant about the... How did I get started doing a rant about it? Oh, I, you, you I, I wanted to hear it. was your fault. Yeah, yeah, I apologize. <laughs> the instigator, that's right. So the, the problem... I mean, this is a fundamental thing, I think, in some ways, because the brain has this all of these connections... They're really complicated. It doesn't. You pick the basal ganglia, or you could pick the visual cortex. You could pick the thalamus or the cerebellum, and you start wanting to include everything that's known about the wiring of that, and it just turns into a mess. And everything is connected to everything, and to some degree, and some pathways are big, and some are small, and you don't really know enough about them to know which ones are really big and which ones are really small. You know, gradually we're getting to know that stuff, and you'd like to know does it. These two pathways both project in this place. Like uh, the ventral tegmentillary is a place like that. It has like 25 different places that go there, some crazy large number like that. It's a lot, yeah. And maybe 25 is an exaggeration, <laughs> but it's a lot. And you have to ask, this is the kind of question that Anatole asks in his experiments, uh, 
in the various places where he's done it, is does this pathway go to that neuron type? Oh yeah, it does. Okay, does it go to that neuron type? And does this pathway go to that neuron type and that neuron type? And that stuff is what makes sense out of the circuit when you realize what affidavits go to what neurons, how the neurons are interconnected with each other. But as you do that, the wiring diagram is, diagram is getting really huge, complicated, interesting, interesting unless you want to explain something really simple with it. And then it just becomes, hey, there are 20 different ways for the information to get from point A to point B. And I need a diagram that's got two, <laughs> two is a good number because because almost everybody because then it's stop or two. go. It's, yeah, it can be combined. <laughs> and D1 and D2, right? And D1 and D2, yeah. That's the, that was the original dichotomy, so you had to come up with two, right? Two, yeah. kinds, of, two kinds of receptors, two kinds of behaviors, and, and, two kinds of and then you need two circuits to get, yeah, right. to get them to, to work. How do they happen? Yeah. yeah, the key two findings, the reason that that, that paper from uh, Alvin et al. couldn't have been published in 1981 when the direct and indirect pathways were discovered was because the D1, D2 dichotomy wasn't. Well, I think it's true that you can drive these neurons on MOS, right? And you can get these behavioral effects. So functionally, there's some truth to the model. Now, what my experiments didn't say was whether, you know, the indirect pathway went via the STN or was the GPE to SNR pathway the real indirect pathway. Like those details, I think, have yet to be to be worked out. But I think at some level these neurons do induce the behaviors. Uh, so that much is true, which is remarkable even that that is much as true. But the interesting thing, I think, is when you record in vivo, these things are coactive uh, in all kinds of behaviors. And it's, you know, I know of no study that has yet pulled out a distinct role for one cell type versus the other you know, in a, in a behavior, in an ongoing behavior. I mean, I think labs are looking at this, and we're interested in it, but I don't yet know of any clear example where that's been shown. Maybe psychotic eye movements, but even Hikosaka didn't specifically identify, you know, the D1 neurons or the D2 neurons as, you know, being involved in hold and go for these eye movements. That would be persuasive if that, was, if that were demonstrated. So there's another dichotomy that's uh, that has plagued the basal ganglia for even longer, and that seems to me that you're really uh, opening it up, re reopening this old wound, and in a really good way. And the original idea of the basal ganglia from uh, uh, from you know 1914 paper by Wilson was that the basal ganglia are extrapyramidal motor control network. That controls the extrapyramidal uh, motor pathways in the spinal, cerebrospinal extrapyramidal pathways, which are like the vestibulospinal and the tectospinal and the reticulospinal tracts, rubrospinal tract. Those are all extrapyramidal as opposed to the pyramidal tract. And his evidence was that the main output of the basal ganglia was to the red nucleus. And the red nucleus is an honest to God extrapyramidal motor system. And so the cerebellum also helps to control the red nucleus, and so the idea was here are these two extrapyramidal control systems controlling non-pyramidal 
uh, cerebrospinal motor systems, and then there's the cortex. And that was undone um, in the 1940s when it turns out there was no prediction to red nucleus. Mm. So, you know, it's interesting. And I was just perusing the Allen Brain Atlas comparing projections of the EP and the SNR. But the EP in the mouse seems to target the red nucleus, and the SNR doesn't touch it. Ah, really, the red nucleus. Yeah. So, what, I don't know much about the red nucleus. I'm curious to hear what 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 is the function of the red nucleus, and how might the basal ganglia, you know, targeting that? Well, I'd like to look really closely at that because the, you know, the neuroanatomist that came after Wilson said that the EP went to the rubral rostral rubral field, which is a field of Pharrell just in front of the red mm-hmm. nucleus and not the red nucleus proper, and if mm-hmm. that isn't true, then that's huge. Mm-hmm. I would be super excited about that. About the red nucleus, you know, it's another place like the... Well, it's not exactly like the other places, I guess. The red nucleus get... Neur- there are some spinal projecting neurons in the red nucleus, very few in humans, but really a lot in rodents, and they are fast-conducting, and they... Like the pyramidal tract, they go directly to motor neurons. Yeah. So only the pyramidal tract and mm-hmm. the rubrospinal tract go directly to motor neurons. So that makes them special. And they uh, and the rubrospinal cells get a huge input from the deep cerebellar nuclei and a, and a smaller, more distal input from the motor cortex. And so they are... Even the red nucleus... You know, People didn't know that in 1914, but the red nucleus is like in a way, and it also is connected to the pyramidal motor system because it gets a big input from the pyramidal motor system. So the same thing has happened in the basal ganglia. You know, we almost don't make the distinction between pyramidal and extrapyramidal motor system because because the basal ganglia goes to both pyramidal and extrapyramidal motor systems. And even though everybody acts like the pyramidal motor system is what's important, but. Uh, maybe you'd like to say something about how some of the extrapyramidal motor systems may be responsible for that, for a lot of the things that we're used to seeing basal ganglia do. Well, I think what a lot of the basal ganglia does are these sort of automated behaviors that you don't have to think about. And a lot of those sort of behaviors that are on autopilot are these very primitive behaviors like locomotion. Um, and postural control. Um, and so, you know, in some ways, I think that you know, makes a lot of sense that these are, these are very ancient can motor control systems. And they look, evolved well before, arguably, a lot of these cortical control systems. It was, uh, one of the things I was thought was, it was also interesting. So if you... Now talk about pyramidal tract, or you start to focus on the basal ganglia loops with the cortex, yeah. which you, if you forget all this other business that yeah. happens, right? Uh, you also have this kind of, the complication of your simple plus minus diagram gets complicated by the thalamus because it's unclear whether plus and minus work simply in the thalamus. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know whether some of the areas that you're working on, it seems like maybe it works more directly plus and minus in the sense that output goes yeah. Yeah. to glutamate cells and that excites things and it's pretty simple that way. But when you go into the thalamus, you know, you can get excitation that gives, you know, inhibition that gives rise to excitation and rebound and plus and minus gets complicated there as you go out. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus you get loops and other things that complicate plus and minus. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, is it different? Uh, 
uh, you know, the projections to these other places, like the colliculus and stuff, is the thalamus the main thing that makes the basal ganglia do something else? It's a great question. Uh, we have not investigated the basal ganglia connections to the colliculus, and physiologically, I don't know how well that has been investigated. Um, the thalamic connections are fascinating to me. We have a whole, the kind of a growing area of the lab that's interested in investigating precisely these sorts of questions that you know, Dave Perkel and Jesse Goldberg and others have looked at, which is, you know, is rebound spiking critical? Is, and there, there are all these models for how the basal ganglia affects the thalamus. Is it timing? Is it, you know, inhibition? Is it, you know, rebound spiking? What are the modes of um, drive, right? I mean, what's interesting about the thalamus is, you know, most thalamic nuclei receive excitatory driver inputs from the periphery. And in the case of the basal ganglia, they're inhibitory. But they have much of the same anatomical features that a lot of these excitatory driver-like inputs have. So, so what is the mode there? And nobody really knows, you know. Um, do you see rebound bursts in awake animals? It's been very difficult to look at these sorts of things. I think with head-fixed preparations and behaving animals and recording in these nuclei, it's going to be really exciting to, to do optogenetic manipulations from basal ganglia, uh, recording in thalamus, recording in cortex and really understanding how the basal ganglia does impact these thalamocortical circuits. And that's something I think, you know, for the, over the next 10 years, I see, you know, my lab certainly moving into. The thalamus has exotic dynamics. That's what you kind of meant. Yeah. So you could, almost anything can happen in such a complicated dynamics. So how about some of the other targets? You said you haven't worked on the... Like superior colliculus, but superior colliculus is kind of famous for having uh, exotic dynamics in it. Uh, how about the pedunculo pontine? The cells there are yes, okay. yeah. So the PPN, I mean, that's just probably a major component of the MLR while we've been recording. I mean, they are spontaneously active neurons. They seem to be under some sort of tonic inhibitory control, so that m manipulating the SNR can give you increases or decreases in firing rate, and that's certainly consistent with what we've seen with the control of these cells by the direct and indirect pathway. So we can see either increases or decreases, um, presumably by modulating this tonic GABAergic input uh, onto these spontaneously active neurons. Um, so I, you know, I suspect, you know, the modes of interaction with these different nuclei may share some principles, but there may be some some unique aspects. I suspect the thalamus is going to have a, a more unique aspect uh, than you know those neurons act a little bit differently than the than the MLR than the PPN neurons we've recorded from or the MLR neurons we've recorded from. So a lot of the cells are tonically active at reasonably high rates, which means they can be rate-modulated in both directions. That's right, that's right, yeah. And that's certainly true in the, in the basal ganglia output nuclei. It's true in the MLR, I guess, yeah. although the rates are not as high. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, it's true in subthalamic nucleus, but the rates there aren't as high either. <coughs> but it's sort of not true in the thalamus, as far as I know. The thalamic neurons are not spontaneously active, and they need to have some driver input in yeah. And of course, famously, the neurons in the thalamus that get basal ganglia input probably have a driver, but we just don't know what it is. That's right. Yeah. And uh, and we've tolerated that for a long time. And we, it's, it's, it's a surprising 
I think that has been known since like 1976 or something. That the, the see these parts of the thalamus that receive basal ganglia input are also parts that famously get cerebellar input. So the first idea was that the basal ganglia was gating cerebellar excitation, but but by the mid 70s people knew that wasn't true and that the thalamic neurons that get cerebellar input don't get basal ganglia input, at least in the, that may not, that they might converge in the intralaminar nuclei and central median, but they don't in the ventral tier thalamic nuclei. So that tells you there must be a, there must be a driver. But Which no, is cortex, presumably. Presumably. Because they're, like other thalamic nuclei, there's a fairly significant cortical input onto these neurons. So maybe there's a layer five cortical input to them that forms these like driver synapses. Do we have an idea about where that, what part of cortex that would be? Yeah, so uh, I think it's a little more frontal regions. So it'd be some premotor. Yeah, thing. that's why it's. I think I, I think so. Yeah. So that would really make that a uh, thalamocortical loop that's just being. Uh, modulated by exactly. Well, this is the interesting thing I think that you know Rob Turner brought up, which is, you know, if you just take away the basal ganglia, you know, you don't see as much dysfunction as you might predict, right. and that's a little bit surprising to a lot of people. Like you know, DBS essentially the whole goal of that is to just inactivate the basal ganglia, and the idea is that in Parkinson's. There is bad output, oscillatory, co- you know, synchronous output, and that's bad. There's a gain of function there that's bad, and if you just take it out of the system, you're better off. In fact, thalidotomy is also a exactly, thing. Exactly, exactly, right? So this yeah. tells you something interesting. I mean, you don't need a basal ganglia uh, for certain functions. I once asked Mammon DeLong if he would just prophylactically destroy my globus power bits. <laughs> just on the off chance that I might get Parkinson's disease sometime. <laughs> because he had just told me that he didn't think that there were any ill effects of that. Yeah, it's remarkable, right? This is this thing we study. We think it's really important. I'm sure there are ill effects yeah. of that. I'm sure you're not going to be able to learn to play, you know, yeah. the piano very well. I don't That's know. Right. <laughs> anyway, I he said I'm... if I could get a third party to pay for it. He... Uh, <laughs> 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 and I guess there's also a, a problem with um, trying to discover the function of the basal ganglia by studying Parkinson's disease, right? Which I think is also an issue which what made these circuits so simplified is the fact that um, I don't think you can determine what the basal ganglia does by looking at what a diseased basal ganglia is doing. And, and a lot of the circuitry comes from a lot of that. They see these motor functions, that motor deficits that are induced by disease states. And like you, like you said, you're better off than just removing the basal ganglia altogether and you almost have no symptoms again. Yeah. I, I think that's pretty important in terms of how the circuitry arrived. Of course, polygotomies were always done with small lesions in very yeah. precise places. There were old papers from the 50s and 60s where they did bilateral large pallidotomies and had you know wildly bad outcomes like uh, yeah. people with like really severe hallucinations and uh, just completely debilitating results of course those lesions might have spilled out into something else yeah. it was a while ago and but those 
it was frightened people away from Tamagotomy for a little while. And uh, so it's possible that part of the reason that we have the feeling that it's not really doing much is that the surgeons are making very precisely placed pallidotomies that right. are in the, uh, in the affected part of the globus pallidus where that's creating the motor dysfunction and system. other pieces of globus pallidus that are connected to nucleus accumbens and stuff like that are not affected by those. Are, are people who have undergone pallidotomies, do they have problems learning new tasks? Uh, so that's a good segue. For, oh, okay. reinforcement learning stuff. But anyway, go ahead. Can you... <laughs> I said I was going to bring it I think uh, I think so, but I don't... I don't have the... I don't know. Yeah, uh, yeah we, we're theorizing that that probably should be, but I'm wondering if, if anybody knows if that actually is the case with people who have undergone that surgery. I, I don't know myself. But... I've asked this question a couple of times to people who yeah, do that know. kind of work, but the, the thing is your, your Parkinson's patient... Is glad not to be frozen anymore, and they're and you know having them do some kind of joystick sensory motor task or something like that. You don't have a good baseline. You don't know how good they were before because you couldn't test them before because they couldn't do anything like that before, and so it's very hard to to figure out whether there's been a learning deficit. You know, for for people who study dopamine and learning, you think. There ought to be some kind of motor learning deficit after pallidotomy, but yeah. I don't think there's a there's not an obvious way to do those experiments in humans to get that answer. Yeah. So, so can you say something about your uh, I guess it was 2012 study yes. uh, <clears throat> about the where you completely bypass the dopamine system, you activate D1 and D2 pathways selectively, and you look at um, reinforcement. Uh, learning and yeah. aversive versus uh, sort of more uh, rewarding. Yeah, so the motivation for this study really comes out of the idea that dopamine itself is a reward prediction error signal, and there are certainly some subset of the dopamine neurons do seem to be acting in this way. And what that means essentially is if you do something and there's an unexpected positive outcome, then you have a burst of dopamine. And if you do something and you're expecting reward and you don't get it, then you have this little bit of a face drop in dopamine. And the idea, of course, is, you know, the way dopamine is thought to work in the striatum is that, you know, phasic increases are thought to activate D1 receptors and potentially D1 neurons. Maybe phasic decreases will, you know, tend to activate D2 neurons. At least this has been a theory. Um, it's been difficult to show this in vivo, but this is the idea. And so one idea would be that if, uh, you know, you want to reinforce an action that led to a positive outcome, then, you know, that outcome is going to cause a phasic increase and it's going to maybe lead to plasticity on the on D1 neurons that are going to be activated by dopamine and, and tend to reinforce inputs that led to that positive outcome. And so we thought, well, you know, most... Most primary reinforcers like sugar and you know palatable food, um, those things uh, are highly reinforcing and possibly through increases of dopamine. So what if we just bypassed all of that and just activated the D1 cells directly? Is that also a primary reinforcer? That was really the, the basis of the study, and the answer is, is yes. The D1 stimulation is a very strong primary reinforcer. It can 
it can substitute for natural rewards and it can lead to synaptic plasticity that will you know essentially drive the animal to continue you know pressing a lever or nose poking to get that d1 stimulation so d1 activation is reinforcing and so this leads to the idea that maybe this system didn't evolve to just promote movement per se but maybe it evolved to promote actions that led to rewards and maybe the indirect pathway evolved not just to suppress behavior per se but to suppress behaviors that led to not receiving reward so I think that that was the philosophy, the, the underlying idea, and this is what we tested, and we found that you know the, the D1 pathway is very strongly reinforcing. Now the D2 pathway was not did not result in any kind of persistent um, learning. And this is interesting because it ties into these decades of psychological literature in which people don't learn as well from from punishment. They learn much better from, from positive outcomes. And so, you know, from, from flies to humans, it's the case that, you know, punishment just isn't nearly as effective as reward at kind of causing people to change their behaviors. Maybe this has something to do with that. Could you comment a little bit on, you know, the, at least in the mouse and, you know, rodents, uh, you know, the striatum a lot of times is, you know, broken up into, you know, dorsal striatum, ventral striatum, and... Did you observe any differences in sort of dorsal versus ventral striatum? And would you ascribe sort of like different behavioral functions to dorsal and ventral striatum by bypassing the dopamine neurons? And also, you know, you've got different complements of inputs coming in. I mean, dopamine's a neuromodulator. Yeah, what sort of yeah. specific inputs may be sort of required for these, you know, appetitive versus, you know, temporary aversive? No, I think it's a very interesting question. So we were stimulating the dorsal medial striatum, which is this kind of it's it's almost halfway between dorsal and ventral striatum, um, not necessarily anatomically, but functionally it seems to be that way. I mean, it, it actually anatomically as well, right? So the VTA innervates dorsal medial striatum, which gives it a more of a ventral character. Yet it receives you know a lot of cortical inputs. Um, so we started in dorsal medial striatum. That is strongly reinforcing. We've also done it in dorsolateral striatum. We thought, well, maybe, you know, dorsolateral striatum is primarily motor, sensory motor area. Maybe this wouldn't be as reinforcing, but it was. Um, ventral striatum is also reinforcing. So this, you know, I think gets at this kind of interesting issue about uh, these different, the functions of different striatal subregions. I think people have ascribed different striatal subregions to different functions, right? So ventral striatum being involved in motivation and sort of limbic functions and dorsal medial striatum is involved in action and uh, action value and flexible learning and dorsal lateral striatum is involved in habit formation and more purely motor type learning. But when you go record from these areas, you don't often see clear evidence for neurons that are only responsive to say action value here or, you know, it, it, it just doesn't seem as clear cut. So, um, there is a little bit of a discrepancy there between you know, some lesion studies, which have seemed to clearly uh, link these areas to certain functions, and then the recording studies that don't necessarily link these as clearly. It's a little bit analogous to the optogenetic experiments, where you see clear functions of these circuits, but then you go record, and you don't see the same sorts of correlates. So, some 
newer papers coming out also optogenetics, but um, nonetheless, they are showing that the SNC, which primarily projects a dorsal medial and mostly dorsal lateral striatum, are also reinforcing in a you know reward related type fashion that is usually only ascribed to VTA stimulation. Yeah. So it seems to be falling. It's just a pendulum swinging back, right? Because Schultz's original description of this reward stuff was all in SNC. the SNC. Yeah. Yeah. And he was viewing that as the as those things as reward cells, and then, then I think it migrated immediately, and now it's kind of. I think it migrated probably because um, plasticity was easier to find in PTA dopamine neurons, whereas um, a lot of the plasticity that people look for in the compactor neurons they couldn't see, uh-huh. and, and so how could any learning be happening there then? Right? Forget about circuitry or anything uh-huh. that it's all LTP or nothing else. So. Maybe it's coming back now to the SNC. <laughs> in some ways, you almost don't want the... If you are encoding a reward prediction error, I mean, they need to be responsive to the inputs coming in. And in some ways, you almost want those SNC neurons, if they're encoding that, that function, to not necessarily be immediately you know, susceptible to plasticity events. You want them to be a little more rigid so that they can respond to, oh, I didn't get a reward. You know, shut it off. You're you're not having a, a rapid ad- adaptation. Yeah. So, or maybe that actually makes sense. Maybe there is plasticity in SNC neurons. That's no one has found it yet. Okay. <laughs> they just got to wait for the pendulum to swing back. They should look now. They should look now. <laughs> yeah. Now's, now's <laughs> the time to look. For it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Anatol Kreitzer, for being with us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. I'll end it.